Thank you for the um, enthusiasm that you have for the fellowshipping with one another. This is a lovely family to belong to, isn't it? There's some of you that may not know us, you know me too well. I'm Pete Mishler. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and my dear, beautiful Denise, wife, Denise, um, and I have been in the church since 1999. The first day that we visited Gulf Coast was the first day that Jerry Caesar came on as staff. So we have quite a history together. Our scripture today is going to be from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. And I'm going to start by just reading the first five verses, and then we'll, we'll take the verses, the next two sections, as we arrive at, the, at them. So um, let, us, let us start by reading God's Word together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rises from supper. He lays aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would show us Jesus afresh, that our hearts might be filled with wonder and that we might be transformed in his presence. We pray through his name. Amen. Well, have you ever, um, have you ever noticed that um, John's gospel is the only one of the four gospels that record his foot, this foot washing scene? And it makes me kind of wonder why he included it. He said that there were many other things that Jesus had, had done that were not written about in his gospel toward the end in, verse 30, in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John very carefully edited and honed down his book to keep out anything superfluous, anything that wouldn't work toward the goal of establishing the reader in saving faith in Jesus Christ, the kind of saving faith that grows out of rightly seeing him as who he really is. Not only did it, this focus in lead John to include this foot washing scene, but to devote nearly a quarter of his gospel, five chapters of the 21 chapters in a book that covers three years of the life and teaching of Jesus, five chapters devoted to this one Passover meal that takes place on the eve of his crucifixion. The other three gospels devote anywhere from a dozen verses to 30 in Luke. All three of the other accounts of the Last Supper or communion are devoted to the description of Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. In five chapters um, about this last, last evening together, John completely leaves out any details about the dinner 
he knew that the church was already in possession of those three other accounts. So we can be sure then that what is included in here must be really, really important to the overall purpose of John's gospel and important to us as, as believers. So um, the central theme that we see in John's gospel and in his letters is the love of God revealed fully in Jesus Christ as the motivating force behind his redemptive mission. It says right in John, in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now we come to the five upper room chapters of John's gospel and they are totally saturated in this theme. They're the mountaintop of the love of Christ revealed. <clears throat> there is so much in this passage that could be fruitfully applied to our lives, but I want to just stay focused on that theme. My reason is that his love as the motivating force is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's foundational to our understanding of the, of the gospel and to living as his people. So I'm going to rephrase it and say it again, the, the theme here. We will see revealed in this passage that the motivating force behind the redemptive mission of Christ is love. It is a love which finds its expression in serving, and it is a love into which we have been called as his people that it may through us find its expression in serving, serving one another. And the title of our message, Love Revealed, came from the 19th century English missionary and author George Bowen of Bombay. He uh, did a series of meditations on the upper room chapters of John's Gospel, and they were gathered into a book by that title, Love Revealed. <clears throat> so, so, here is our goal today in exploring this theme. And what motivated Jesus in, in washing the disciples' feet and John in including it in his gospel. It's so that Jesus' disciples, including you and I, would grow in our understanding of his love, and then secondly, that we would gain assurance of our position in that love, and then thirdly, learn better how to walk in that love toward one another. And you might notice that those, that those three goals are really nicely aligned with our three values as a church that we state, love the gospel, live the gospel, and advance the gospel. So we're going to give this under three headings that answer the question as to why John included this in, in his book and what motivated Jesus. And that is, first, because he loved them. Second, because they needed to know that he loved them. And third, because it showed them what love looks like in practice. So let's start with because he loved them. The, 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 the passage is so familiar to all of us. <clears throat> and the idea that Jesus washing his disciples' feet is given to us as an object lesson that we're to humble ourselves and, and serve one another. So a, after all, that's what Jesus said was the reason for doing it as, a, as an example to his disciples. But if you start there, <clears throat> let me just take a sip. <clears throat> if you just start there and skim over the first three verses, you're going to be trying to build without laying a proper foundation. The first thing that God intends for us to see and grasp here is something of the depth and fullness of Christ's love as the foundation of the gospel. It is critical for us to take our time to think deeply about his love. 
If you're a person who's eagerly awaiting the sermon's practical application, I want to assure you that when we are exploring the love of Christ, we are swimming in deep, deep life application waters. And that was Paul's opinion. He, look how he prayed for the Ephesians in, in Ephesians chapter 3. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of Christ, of, of God. If you try to make practical application of Christ's teachings without first being transformed by his love, you will end up with empty moralism, and that would be futile. As again, as Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And not only do you gain nothing, but you, if you try to serve because you think it's the right thing to do or you're going to gain approval of people uh, as they recognize what a great servant you are, it's, it's going to last as long as you're getting approval. The first time you fail to get recognition or you meet with ingratitude or you determine that the person or people that you're serving aren't deserving of that, you're going to be over it. So how can we be transformed by his love? Transformation comes from comprehending. Comprehending comes from beholding. Taking time to think about Christ's love is very practical and necessary. If your aim is to be changed into his likeness, again, to quote Paul, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So remember when we are considering Christ's love in this passage that it's not some amorphous, ethereal platitude. It's focused on an object. The object are his disciples. And it is full of purpose that results in action. Think about the fact that we're given here a glimpse into the mind of God. Consider, we're, we're, we're getting insight into the mind of Jesus at at the Passover meal, on the eve of his crucifixion. I mean, that's just something to stop and be amazed at right there, that we're given that insight. It's not just an incidental piece of information to remind us that Jesus knew ahead of time that he was about to go to the cross. John has made it clear in the chapters leading up to this evening that Jesus not only knew what would take place and when, but he was in complete control of all the events as they unfolded. Now, there, you may see some irony in that. There is some irony in that. Because um, there's an assertion that he was in complete control. And the, the word asserts that he was in complete control. But the religious authorities had already plotted and, you know, plotted the, the complete plans to bring about his death. He, he, they thought he needed to be stopped. And then on the other hand, the Romans, to them he, did, he represented but a minor disturbance, a passing inconvenience in a remote and insignificant territory whose life would be extinguished without the slightest ripple. So it's a mystery that deserves to be pondered. If you want to grow in your understanding of how it is that the Bible teaches and we believe that God is in complete control of all the events of history, while at the same time acknowledging the obvious fact that wicked people are seemingly successful in carrying out their evil schemes, 
this has been an issue in my family with my grandchildren. It's been the issue of many discussions. Well, study how Jesus worked. He was masterfully orchestrating everything in a way that only God can do by working through the hidden motivations and decisions of all the players on the stage. So anyway, we're not, we're not just being reminded here about what Jesus knew, but exactly what was on his mind, what was occupying his thinking and motivating his actions. And we're told that what was on his mind at this pivotal moment in all of the history of humanity was that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now stop there. Jesus knew who he was. He was not a sage from Galilee trying to convince the world of a new religious system. He was God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth. He'd been with God the Father, reigning in glory from before the creation of time, but he did not think equality with God a thing to be clung to and had emptied himself, becoming fully man to come on this rescue mission of mercy. He had hand-chosen and poured his life into these 12 men, day and night for three years. They had tested the endurance of his patience a thousand times. Now he was poised on the brink of going to the cross. He knew that Judas was about to betray him. He knew that brassy, boastful Peter, was, with all his bravado, would deny him three times in just a few hours. And that they would all scatter and abandon him in the moment of his greatest agony. In coming to this world, Jesus had come from the Father. Now, I don't know how time and space look to Jesus, but in some way, he had left the presence of the Father in order to come into this world as a man. That in itself may have been the greatest sacrifice Jesus had made in his redemptive quest. Think of it. He traded the company of the Father for the company of these knuckleheads. And now his arduous task was nearly complete. Nearly complete. We see from the descriptions of his thoughts the repetitive emphasis on the relationship with the Father. He came from God. The Father had put all things into his hands. Then twice we're told he was going back to God. How could that not have captured all of his thoughts? How could he have not been distracted from his present company with the contemplation of his return to that glorious place of fellowship? The writer of Hebrews says... For the joy that was set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what, what was the joy that was set before him? I'm sure there was unimaginable joy at the thought of his return to the place at the right hand of God. But I think the specific joy before him and the joy in his heart this evening was the completion of his mission to redeem his people, a people he is not ashamed to call his brothers. So we're told this about Jesus, not in spite of what he knew, but in light of this knowledge, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Australian theologian Leon Morris wrote in, of the expression to the end that in the Greek it sometimes means to the end. And sometimes, utterly. 
both are true, and it may well be that John wants us to see them both. In other words, in that moment, he did not quit thinking about and loving them. In that pivotal moment, that's who he was thinking about. So to the end. And also, he loved them to the uttermost extent of love's truest meaning. They were at the heart of his mission. And he held them as his dear friends. They were, in a unique way, his own. This includes and goes way beyond what we all, you know, how we affectionately think of our beloved ones as our own people. Yes, he identified with them in their weakness, and he identifies with all of us in our weakness. He said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But there's more. They and we in the same way are his own chosen ones, purchased with his blood, precious in his sight, redeemed, a people for his own possession. Here's a little mini application. Have you ever been in a situation where you were placed with a person or people to work with or to serve, maybe at church, and this person or people were poorer than you, or maybe homeless, or had a criminal background, or addictions, or a lack of education, or cognitive or physical disabilities, or maybe just a socially challenged person that people tend to avoid. Did you, do you, try to avoid them? Or did you treat them nice, but be relieved to get away from them? Or did you fully identify with them? And seek to form a friendship that would give you more opportunity to be with them and serve them and consider them among your beloved friends? When you think about it this way and then look afresh at how Jesus was with his disciples and how he is with us, his love and humility will fill your heart with fresh love and admiration for him. And yes, the desire to be like him will grow. That's what transformation looks like. So yes, his mind was filled with love for his disciples. And though it was overflowing with genuine affection, it was nothing like what we might think of as impotent, mushy sentimentality. This love was filled with 100% practicality. Far from being like a condemned man awaiting his fate, he was totally focused on the mission at hand, and his disciples were at the heart of his mission Ready or not, the whole enterprise of the kingdom of God on earth lay with this little ragtag band. Jesus' love for, had a very laser-sharp focus on these men. So here's another little application. When you think of your life mission, maybe, maybe you've set your heart on achieving something really, really great, really noteworthy, or you know something to be rem- remembered for, or maybe you've just daydreamed about doing something important. But let me ask you this, how much of that goal, that daydream, whichever it is, centered, how much is it centered around effectively serving the people God has put in your life and working to see his redemptive purposes realized in their lives? Do you deeply feel the responsibility to God for them? Do you long to see Christ formed in them? Keep looking at Jesus. 
studying Jesus, being blown away by Jesus until the desire to be like him in this regard grows strong enough to transform your most cherished ambitions. So, we know that in washing the disciples' feet, he was not only giving them a needed object lesson, he was acting truly on his inward motivation of love. Jesus was the only man who succeeded in always acting in harmony with his heart without sinning. And his heart perfectly reflected the will of the Father. When we act in harmony with what's in our hearts, we often end up acting like jerks. The best we can do is try to, to do the right thing out of the, a mixture of motives. But you know what? This is okay because if we're able to have some self-awareness and truth, be truthful with ourselves and God, doing the right thing with mixed motives is better than going around acting like a jerk because you're being true to yourself. Jesus expressed his love by washing their feet because it was at its simplest level practical and helpful. People, people didn't wear socks and closed shoes. Paved roads were rare. The roads were dusty and covered with animal dung. So their feet got dirty when walking and sometimes nasty, really nasty. It was, so it was common practice when having guests that a slave would wash their feet upon their arrival or in homes of more modest means at least water and towels would be the, provided for the guests to clean their own feet. The fact that they were already at their places for supper indicates that in their preparations for the dinner, the disciples had overlooked this bit of customary etiquette, since this would have otherwise been taken care of prior to the meal, prior to the supper. And, you know, it's not surprising. <clears throat> the other three Gospels inform us that it was the disciples um, who prepared the supper, so yes, they, they kind of have been ratted out here for their negligence. <clears throat> you know what it's like when a bunch of guys plan an event together, right? It's like, okay, you, you bring the meat, yeah, I'll bring the bacon, Joe, you bring the brats, Jimmy, you, you bring the beer, and uh, what about forks? Eh, who needs forks? You know, it's like, <laughs> bring the meat. <laughs> anyway, by the, by, the, by the way they sat around the supper table at that time, or the way that they sat around the, su- the supper table at that time was a lot different than we do now. They did not sit at chair- on chairs with their feet below them. In fact, the, the only people that did that in that day were slaves. What they did is they reclined on their sides next to each other on long couches at an angle with their heads toward the table, leaning on their left elbows with their legs slightly bent and their feet stretched out behind them. <clears throat> When your feet are up on the furniture instead of under the table, it's pretty obvious if they're nasty or clean. Okay? It's highly likely that most, if not all of them, had already noticed that they had neglected to provide for this need. But nobody did a thing about it. Would you have? Yeah, I probably wouldn't have either. So, yeah. Jesus did. He got up and stripped down to his loincloth, just like a slave would do. He wrapped a towel around him in such a way as to leave one end hanging where he could use it to wipe their feet after washing them. It was more practical than messing up his robe. But washing their feet has a deeper spiritual meaning, as we will see under the next heading, because they needed to know it. Verses 6 through 11, let's read those. And by the way, that was the longest point, so don't worry. Verse 6, 
And um, by the way, you'll notice some of the words, the verbs that I read are in present tense. That is the way John wrote it, so I wanted to keep it that way because in relating the narrative, that sometimes brings the immediacy. That's the way we do it all the time. You know, Joe says to me, blah, 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 and okay. He comes then to Simon Peter who says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter says, said to him, you shall never wash my feet, never. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. <clears throat> Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus says to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, plural, you all, are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. <clears throat> that was why he said, not all of you are clean. I need my glasses for a moment. <clears throat> so he makes his way to Peter. I'm sure the other disciples were embarrassed too, but they didn't speak up. As we've come to expect, Peter is the one who says what the others are probably thinking. Jesus knew that he would. (laughs) It's uh, all under his direction and plan, remember? So what he's doing is he uses Peter's objections as a platform to impart wonderful truth. We sometimes may be critical of Peter when we read these accounts. It's like, what a knucklehead. But, But Jesus chose this man to lead the apostles, be the lead apostle of his church, and he probably knew what he was doing. It is better to have wrong ideas and motivations and keep, and keep them, is it, I should say, and this is a question, is it wrong, <clears throat> is it better, <laughs> try again, to have wrong ideas and motivations and keep them hidden or to speak out and be corrected and grow. It is okay to voice your questions to the Lord. Peter was genuinely embarrassed by what Jesus was doing. I can't imagine not being extremely uncomfortable in that situation. Lord, are you really washing my feet? Lord, what in the world is going on here? Is this really happening? What Jesus was doing was the lowliest of positions even among slaves. One of history's most insightful aphorisms comes from the British Lord Acton. You'll see how this relates in a second. Who wrote, and we all know it, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We see this throughout history, throughout every sphere and institution of human interaction. It is always the case because of the thoroughness of sin's corruption of the human heart. But in Jesus, we see history's only exception. We, we crave power over others, power over our circumstances, and, fo- and we fool ourselves into thinking that we actually have some power to wield. Jesus actually had all power. The Father had given all things into his hands. But he was emptying himself for the sake of love. He had already descended so far from his lofty position that acting like the lowliest of slaves at this point was probably not even a thing to him. Listen to what Jesus answers, Peter. It is the same answer he would give to us in the various life situations we face. In fact, you, perhaps you've already you've heard this. You've heard him whisper this to your heart before. I know I have. What I am doing, 
now you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. The more you grow to know him as your Lord and Savior, the more your understanding of his character and trustworthiness grows, the more comfort and assurance you will experience with that answer. Okay, Lord. What did Jesus mean by afterwards? What did he mean that they would understand once he'd finished washing their feet and gave them his explanation? Yeah, partly. But the real understanding of the spiritual symbolism of his washing of their feet would come after his death and resurrection. It is only then that they would see that his washing foreshadowed that washing that would come with the shedding of his blood to cleanse them of their sin. And even though that analogy felt short, as analogies do, because washing their feet is obviously something they could have done for themselves, the fact that he bent down to serve them in, a, in, in accomplishing this unsavory task spoke of the fact that what he would accomplish in providing for the cleansing of our sin is something no person could ever accomplish for ourselves. Now, if Peter was doing the right thing in questioning Jesus to start with, he goes way over the line here by refusing to accept his answer. And essentially, he rebukes him, and which is a repeat of, of when he rebuked Jesus the first time that Jesus revealed to them that he would suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders and be killed. In that instance, as you will remember, his rebuke of Jesus followed right on the heels of his revelation that he received that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was a stupendous display of pride and audacity in that instance, and it is again here, as well as being a ridiculous display of false humility. Folks, we need to not, we need to not confuse audacity for courage. The two could not be further apart. In fact, audacity in a person is often accompanied by cowardice. Think of Peter's denial. So if you think of yourself as a courageous person because of a propensity to speak out rashly, think again. I know I have had to. The kind, that kind of audacity grows out of arrogance and self-righteousness, while true courage grows out of love and moral conviction and is usually accompanied by gentleness. Now, we shouldn't roll our eyes at Peter unless it's the eye roll of self-recognition, Okay? I'm ashamed to say I see myself in him more at moments like this than at his best moments. I remember, I remember rebuking the best boss I ever had, the, most, the kindest, the most giving mentor, the, the top, the best professional I had ever worked with. He was really committed to my growth as a professional too, and I remember him saying something in a meeting and me, and me piping up and saying, is that wise? No, he says, no, I said it because it was stupid. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, remember that this is the man Jesus chose to be the leader of his church. It should give us great comfort to know that God does not choose humble men. He chooses proud men. And then proceeds to work humility in them over a lifetime. He does not choose wise people. He chooses knuckleheads and does the patient work of building his wisdom in them over a lifetime. Christians are the freest people in all the world to honestly see and confess the ugliness within us because we know that we are accepted in Christ and he will complete the good work 
that he began in us. <clears throat> well, as usual, Peter's ill-advised arguments with Jesus turn out to be for our good fortune because we get to see how Jesus answers them. So thank you, Peter. See, um, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me, he says. No one can come to God. No one can belong to his people who has not first been washed of his sin by God. There's no alternative path. Do not ever think you have within yourself or your own efforts a way way to make yourself acceptable to God. So now Peter quickly changes his tune. He's still displaying a humility that does not quite ring true, though. And once again, his bluster gives us the opportunity to see Jesus' response. It's a simple fact that someone going to a dinner will have bathed before going to the event and put on fresh clothes. Only his feet will need to be touched up. But again, This is pointing to a spiritual truth because when Jesus says you, plural, are clean, but not every one of you, he was speaking of the fact that Judas was not of the elect. Even though Jesus had physically washed his feet, and think of that, he knew he was to be betrayed by him, he washed his feet. But he was referring to the fact that Judas was still dead in his sin, whereas the other 11 were redeemed. By the way, sometimes you will wash the feet of someone who will betray you. The important thing for us to grasp here is that Jesus was saying that once you have been cleansed of your sin by his atoning death, you belong to him. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. The work is complete and nothing can separate you from God. Peter would deny Jesus three times, but he never stopped belonging to God. This assurance was necessary for them and it is necessary for us. Knowing this gives us the freedom to run to God when we realize that our feet are dirty, not run away from him. It was the assurance that they needed to endure the loss of all things for the sake of the gospel, including their freedom and eventually their lives. And it is the assurance we need when we have suffered great loss in this life And it appears that the Lord is taking too much liberty with his love for us. We need to know that we are his own, a people for his own possession, purchased at great cost. Nothing will ever shake us loose from his hold. Amen? So that brings us to because it showed them what love looked like in practice. We're almost there. So reading in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In saying that he had washed their feet to give them an example, Jesus meant all of it, all of it, starting with the love that motivates it. We as the readers have already seen this by the fact that the scene starts with us being a glimpse into the thoughts of Jesus to understand what was motivating him. But how did John know what Jesus was thinking? Well, Because Jesus made it plain throughout everything he said and did throughout the evening, including his prayer in chapter 17. But he made it explicit to disciples right away 
After briefly diverting the narrative to deal with the betrayal of Judas, John brings us right back in verse 34 to Jesus summarizing the object lesson he has given them. And that is, a new commandment I I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Following Jesus' example starts with loving one another with the love with which he loves us. This means we need to practice the discipline of abiding in his love. That is, studying it, meditating on it, praying over it, considering its implications, and then obeying his command to put it into practice. As we see in John chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's all this big, beautiful circle. It keeps coming back around and coming back around. You can't separate service from that love. It's abiding in this love, loving one another as Christ has loved us that allows us to see the practical ways we can serve each other. That's what makes us be able to see the real things that need that are needed. Both by washing their feet, that is being aware of material ways to serve them, and by washing their feet, that is having uh, in stirring up them, excuse me, having insights into the spiritual ways that we can serve them. This means, you know, things like uh, stirring one another up to love and good works, teaching and admonishing one another, asking timely and sometimes difficult questions. It also includes recognizing others' gifts and finding ways to let them develop those gifts, including allowing them to practice those gifts in serving yourself, which takes humility. We need to keep looking at and thinking about Jesus' example real quickly in three ways. He knew who the people were whom God had assigned to his care and his commitment to honoring and fulfilling that assignment was unwavering. So that's the first way he knew who was assigned to him. He was committed to them. I've manifested your name, he said in chapter 17 in praying to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. What about you? What about me? Who are the people in our lives right now Who's the people in your life right now that you recognize as being an assignment from God to you? How seriously do you take that responsibility? If you are married and or, and or have children, it starts right there. That's ground zero. You cannot truly serve others with the love of Christ unless it grows out of a foundation of loving your household in imitation of him. This is the model he established when he said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. You will, you will be the most fruitful in serving others when you're abiding in Christ's love and nurturing your family in his love. Next, what about the people in your community group or others in your various spheres? Perhaps you have one or more assigned to you who are not yet followers of Christ. Now, the level of responsibility drops off as you move out, but there is some level of design, divine assignment given to you for every person in this church. So look around. 
Think about it. Pray. Ask God if you have anyone assigned to you from him whom you haven't properly recognized as such. The next example that we see from Jesus is that he spent time, lots of quality, real time with his disciples. He wasn't just with them. He devoted his attention to them. And all that he said and did with them was in pursuit of his loving purposes for them. Look at our passage. He spent the entire evening on which he was betrayed, first washing their feet and then washing their feet, pouring his life into them. Be aware, though, we should be careful not to confuse the devotion and attention that grow out of love with indulgence or permissiveness. No, he always acted in their long-term best interests. He was working to make them holy not happy. And though he carefully guarded him, he did not shield them from difficulty, discomfort, disappointment, or even terrifying circumstances. We need the Lord's discernment to see the difference between guarding those we love from spiritual danger or trying to shield them from difficulties that God would have them to walk through. Okay, listen, with this generation, our generation, we are the most insular generation in the history of the world. Everything in our culture is pushing us away from deep loving relationships. You have to be intentional about setting aside your devices, getting out of your cocoon, and using your words, your spoken words. Do you seek to spend time with those who are assigned to you? When you're with them, are you purposeful? Do you study them closely to find ways that you can encourage and challenge them? Do you ask good questions? And the third way, the example we have, is he prayed for them. At the end of the evening, he prays for the disciples. It's known as the high priestly prayer, and it takes the entire chapter 17. Read it again if you want to be filled afresh with awe at how he has loved his own, including you and me. Listen to the last line of his prayer that evening. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you pray for, with, for and with the people you seek to serve? I know it sounds pretty simple, but how often do you forget to bring them and come alongside with them to the throne of grace? It may be the most important way you can serve them. So to summarize the message, let me ask, do you want to be able to walk in close relationship with Jesus? Let his love fill you and compel you to stoop low to serve his people. And one last thought, just one last thought to ponder. You can consider it, make it part of your discussion at lunch today. That's a little bonus. Loving and serving one another as the Lord has loved and served us may be the most powerful evangelism strategy that the church has been given. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word and for loving us Jesus for loving us as you as the father has loved you laying down your life for us giving us this example as we look at you Lord let us truly be transformed we ask this through your name amen